All right, this morning we're back in Esther, Esther 7, verses 5 through 10. And the Word of God says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has, he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the palace where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king and they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king in standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that you've given us this morning when we can come together and worship you and pour over your word. I pray that, they would, that we would be wise to your word, that we would uh, have our hearts and minds open to it, that Adam's preparation would come to fruition and that your spirit would be with him as he preaches to us. Amen. Well, we're back in Esther uh, this morning. And just to uh, bring you back up to speed, just a little bit where we're at, as uh, Jim has just read, you recall, as we're considering the story of Esther, how Esther has long lived between two worlds. And we have noted this throughout our study of the book, but I wish you to key in on this as there is a shift in the story, as you see punishment is coming to Haman. But you recall how Esther functions within the entirety of the book. She has long lived between two worlds. She has lived between two different cultures, and she has lived in between two different value systems. Esther has been a woman, as we trace her steps from the introduction from chapter 1, and we continue through the story in all of her speak, or the way that Mordecai has appealed to her, Esther has been a woman of two identities. Again, I don't say any of this as we have studied throughout the course of our time in Esther uh, to besmirch Esther as a hero of the faith that now we can no longer consider. Uh, none of that is our concern. Rather, the biblical text as we see it truly speaks the identity of the people of God throughout redemptive history, and we often will actually find them much closer to ourselves as we read the stories carefully, we too face a challenge of identity crisis. We have two different cultures. Oftentimes there is the collision between the life of the church and the culture of Christ and the culture of the world outside of the church. Thinking of Esther again, one of Esther's identity Identities lies deeply buried from the start of the story. And it seems as the story is told, again, we don't know specifically beyond the way that the story is told. We don't know really what happened each and every day in Esther's life. It's not the purpose of us to know. It isn't recorded. So simply as we respond to what we can read and what we can assess, we see that one of Esther's two identities is deeply buried 
and appears to only be known to Mordecai, who raised her. The other identity is seen by all. This we can gather from the fact that Esther became queen of the Persian Empire. Those in the city of Susa capital would know for sure Queen Esther, but not in the way that Mordecai would have known her. But they know her as a Persian queen. This particular identity of Esther's mirrors the culture which she is immersed in. It is much more Persian than Jewish. And yet now we have progressed throughout the course of the story that the time here in the moments of crisis, as we have considered again several weeks ago now, and as we come back to the text this morning, these two identities are at a moment of great tension. The question in the mind of the reader, as you read closely throughout the text, and again, you've read the story, if you heard sermons on it, or perhaps you've listened to it in other forms of media, perhaps even seen the movie, you already largely know the ending. But to the reader who sits and considers each and every passage within the text, inevitably, like a good book, the question prompts the reader to ask, is which identity will Esther choose in this moment of crisis when she is so severely needed? It's not unlike, again, it's not in a single isolation that only Esther had to choose between two identities, the pull of the world and the Persian Empire and all the prestige that comes with it, or, or to choose to uh, be maligned and perhaps to suffer with the people of God, that is, the church of the Old Covenant. She isn't the first and she wasn't the last. I recall for you, as we have given to us in Hebrews 11, Moses explicitly had the same dynamics in his own life of leadership. But again, we could pick more choices. I simply highlight for you from Hebrews 11 the role of Moses as it's explicitly stated to us, and we can think of Esther in these same terms. The writer of Hebrews 11 cites for us the story of Moses, verse 23 of chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And we're not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, so again, we think now of Esther, and the people of God, and these, these moments in life that cause us to choose what our identity will be going forward. When Moses was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And, and just to, to flesh that out a little bit, to make clear what that is, in verse 20, 25, choosing rather, that is in stark contrast to being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses rather choose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it's the same sense that we have in dealing with Esther as we look to the story now in chapter 7. Esther has to make this same decision. Will she choose the fleeting pleasures of sin or will she choose indeed to identify herself with the people of God and so suffer perhaps their fate, even if it mean annihilation 
and extermination as a people group. And if you're there in Esther now, in chapter 7, we noted for you, but you see it yet again here in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, as she speaks to King Ahasuerus, asking if, again, if I have found favor in your sight, and again, uh, to tell the king what it is that she desires him to do for her. He has pledged whatever it is, I will take care of it. So she says, if, it, if I have found favor, if it please you, let my life be granted for my wish. For what? And as we think of her identity crisis in this moment, as she chooses, instead of the fleeting pleasures of sin, to identify herself with the people of God, my people, for my request. Verse 4, for we have been sold. I am my people. Notice carefully here, I'll come back to it in just a moment, but as you're following in the text, you notice the citation of the language that she uses to speak of her people's troubles. She's citing the, the contents of the edict as she speaks to Ahasuerus now. Remember who's sitting at the table. I know it's been several weeks since we looked at this text, but you recall, it is only the three of them. Ahasuerus is there, Haman is there, and Esther is there. The person you should be keying in on at this moment in time is you're wondering, I wonder what Haman is thinking right about now. Because remember, the question to the reader is, I wonder what identity Esther will choose. Well, Haman's about to find out. For my people, for my request, for we have been sold. Again, you can just imagine Haman kind of paying attention, perhaps a little bit under uh, the influence of alcohol. Maybe not his keenness, but I'm sure the bell is beginning to ring. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now you think right then, no matter what condition perhaps, um, uh, Haman was in. His ears are perking up. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I wouldn't even, I would be silent. I wouldn't even bother the king with such a request. Um, again, but identifying that it is not just their affliction, but it's our collective covenantal afflictions. Again, at this moment, Esther, as she speaks, to unite herself with the covenant people of God, she is prepared to suffer with the church of Christ, even to the point of dying with them. As the scene then progresses, and we see Esther emerge as this heroine, as an instrument of God for warfare against the Persian Empire, one author comments this as we proceed into the text. He says, quote, this scene that unfolds is about who gets life and who does not. And in such severe circumstances of who will live and who will not, notice the response of the king. Again, to the citation of the edict, my people, we together were to be destroyed, to be killed, and to annihilate. And notice the response of Ahasuerus in verse 5 to the Queen Esther. He says, who is he? 
Isn't that an interesting response? And again, peering into the mindset of Haman, who was at the table with only the three of them together. Who is he? Further than he adds, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Again, when you think of Ahasuerus' response right here, consider just for a moment with me before we proceed the degeneracy of Hashuaris in such a moment. You see, Esther just quoted, as I mentioned to you, from the edict explicitly. She used the three terms that the edict itself also used. What should we do to them? There are peoples, and you can go back and you can read of it in chapters 3, where Haman approaches the king, and then the edict goes out and is published every which where in every province of the Persian Empire for all to read. And it read simply this, that the Jews are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, recall, Esther just quoted from the edict directly to the ears of Ahasuerus, which he himself approved calling for the annihilation of an entire minority population within the Persian Empire. And yet, in this moment, he seems to not even be able to recall it. Think of that. Again, she cites explicitly from it. He's been asking for two days what it is that she would have him do for her. And then she cites the edict explicitly and unites herself and her people to the edict to which he approved. Remember, if you go back in the text, he gave his signet ring to Haman, which then makes for binding Persian law. It's irrevocable. He equipped uh, Haman with the signet ring to put his seal upon the document and upon the edict that calls for the annihilation of entire people's group. He then funded it. You remember Haman said, well, I'll pay you back 10,000 pieces of silver into the king's treasuries. Well, what's the point of the exchange? Well, you're going to have to give me some money to get this ball rolling. I, I've, got, I've got to gather the people. I've got to make the announcement. I've got to travel abroad. We've got to make sure this thing reaches to everybody. We've got to have people copy it in each man's language for each province. There's a lot of work and groundwork to be done here in order to achieve the annihilation of an entire minority population within your Persian Empire. And he said, well, then here, take the money. You can have it as long as you're going to pay it back with the 10,000 pieces of silver. Of course. How is Haman going to do so? By plundering the Jews. Ahasuerus knows this material. Again, how does he know? Uh, uh, the degeneracy of such a man that can, that can forget that he has authorized such an edict. I would imagine in your own lives, if you were to authorize such an edict and somebody quoted from it to you, uh, a couple of days later, you would know exactly what they're talking about. Unless you're just so steeped in depravity, you simply have no care whatsoever for an entire population of people. After the edict was read in the capital city of Susa, and you can see that at the, uh, at the end of chapter uh, 3, I'll, maybe I'll read it just briefly for you so you can recall as to the point of Ahasuerus' depravity. Just think of this individual. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree 
Again, calling for what? Well, you see it in verse 13, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all. Well, how, well, what do you mean? Yep, young, old, women, and children. Everybody is to be annihilated a single day. Plunder all of their goods. By the time you get to verse 14, a decree was published in every province proclaiming to all the peoples to be ready for that day. To the point which I'm making now, verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, in the citadel. Remember Hashuerus at the end of this scene of, verse three, or of chapter 3, and the king and Haman together sat down to drink. What is the backdrop to their drinking? The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now it's just a couple of days later after he's given the signet ring, given Haman funds, and he sat and drank with Haman as the city of Susa, the capital city, was thrown into utter chaos. Esther cites from the same edict, and he seems to not even have a clue as to what she's referencing. Further, you notice his depravity and just how dark King Ahasuerus is at this point within the story is that what actually enrages him the most is the affront to his own power. Not the annihilation of an entire people's group, uh, not even to Esther, who is his wife at the time. Again, uh, his flannering is well known throughout the, uh, the, the recordings of history. We have looked at those before. So again, it's not a really particularly special relationship that he has with Esther. Nonetheless, she has his, his heart, I guess, in terms of, indeed, she's more beautiful than everyone else. But nonetheless, he enjoys plenty of folks. But here is his wife who says, I am to be annihilated. We, my people, we had been sold, but our affliction is so severe, we are going to be killed and destroyed. And look at Ahasuerus' response. Who is he, where is he, and who has dared to do this? Again, what actually enrages him the most is the affront to his power of an unnamed person within his empire. You see, and we've noticed this from out our time in the study of the text, and it really began, as we saw, at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. It will be all the way to the end. It will be the pride of Haman that will bring him destruction. It's the hubris of Haman that makes Ahasuerus rage. There is a conspirator within my kingdom. And this enrages Ahasuerus the most. It began that way for Haman. Remember, we noted uh, months ago, or weeks and weeks ago now, that Haman is that kind of guy who cannot get out of the way of his own success. Every time he has opportunity to just take it uh, let's say he wins 95% of it, he focuses on that 5% that he didn't win. And that focus is his undoing. It's been consistently so, and so now. It is what gets Ahasuerus' ires up the most, is there is a man who is undercutting me, who is acting out within my empire without my authority. But again, Ahasuerus somehow forgets He's the one who empowered the entirety of the situation. 
This seems to be, and we'll consider it perhaps a little bit more next week, but um, this seems to be the dilemma for the king in verse 7. When he leaves the room and he heads into the garden place, there's a consideration there for him because he knows the irrevocable nature of Persian law. Um, What happens is Haman seems to implicate him in a way that the king cannot get out of. But we'll consider this a little bit more as we go forward. Notice verse 7. At the table, you recall, are the three of them. And uh, Esther replies. So in the mind of Haman, by the time King Ahasuerus is, is angry, and he replies to the queen, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now the moment for Haman that it really comes home and it becomes finally clear of what the discussion really is, is verse 6. Esther said, it's a foe, an enemy, which is obvious to Ahasuerus. Of course he is. And at this moment, Haman realizes Esther is Jewish. This wicked Haman. What a momentous and climactic response within the text on behalf of the people of God. Indeed, in the one hand, you could simply say, yes, as Ahasuerus is undoubtedly hearing it, a foe and an enemy. Right. Ahasuerus, of course, thinks it's a foe and an enemy of the Persian Empire. It's a foe and an enemy of my authority. But for the people of God, as they see through the text, Esther, in a moment of crisis, is shaped by faith so as to identify with the people of God historically, her people, her parents, the identity of the church of God, of the old covenant. It is more, he is more than an enemy of the Persian empire, as they well know. He is an enemy of the people of God. That is what Esther truly means, a foe and an enemy. Remember the history here just briefly. The first enemy, I need to read the text for you uh, so that you can just see it as it unfolds here in the lips of Esther, a foe and an enemy. And the people of God that would read such a text and rejoice to see the, f- the fulfillment here. Um, you remember uh, this text, Exodus 17. I'll simply read it. It's verses 14 through 16 if we should to note it. But the history that is all coming to fruition here in this moment at a table in the palace between Ahasuerus, Haman, and Esther as the people of God look on. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this, again, this is Exodus 17. Write this as a memorial in a book. We would need to read such a text. I'm making the argument that the people who read this text first, that is Esther, would not have. 
a foe, and an enemy. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Further, as you move forward throughout the story, because you know Amalek is descendant here in Haman. Haman is an Amalekite, an Agagite, by descent from the Amalekites. They were the first enemy to actually attack Israel as they came out of the Exodus events. You'll see that once more as I read one more text for you, is it takes shape from Moses' writings now into 1 Samuel. I cite for you in verse, or chapter 15 what this means for Haman at this moment and the people of God through Esther as his instrument of warfare. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel 15, uh, uh, verse 1 says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. Remember, Haman is sitting at the table, a foe and an enemy. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. They were the very first enemy that sought to overthrow God's people. Verse 3, now unto Saul, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Of course, as we know the story throughout the historical text, Saul failed. And then you remember the visitation by Samuel. Because again, the foe and the enemy of God's people was allowed to continue on. Saul was instructed as the people of God's representative as their king to destroy the foe and the enemy. He failed to do so. You can read the rest of the story in 1 Samuel 15. One author concludes this way, considering the statement by Esther, an enemy and a foe. saying, quote, through Mordecai and Esther, Yahweh continues the war with Amalek. He began with Moses. Mordecai's refusal to bow, you remember, that's the, that's the one domino that fell and caused all of the other dominoes to fall, to which we find an Agagite, a descendant from the Amalekites, sitting at the table across from Esther, seeking their annihilation. It was simply Mordecai's refusal to bow. But so the author concludes, again, the, 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 through Mordecai and Esther, Yahweh continues the war with Amalek. He began with Moses. Mordecai's refusal to bow is simply the trigger that opens the next chapter in the conflict. The Agagite at the table, descendant of the Amalekites, is a foe and an enemy. But not as a Hashuera simply hears it. Indeed, he undercut my authority. No. 
He's a foe and an enemy of God's. You see, this is a takeaway from our text this morning as we just meditate, just a couple of moments more. You, you see, historically speaking, redemptively historically, wherever we're at in the covenant scriptures, tracing out what God has done on behalf of his people throughout redemptive history, you see, whether it's Pharaoh of Egypt, the let my people go, or Agag, the king of the Amalekites, which Saul was supposed to slay, of which God had ordered him. Or you could go to Goliath, the Philistines, the great enemy of the people of God. Or as we sit here with Esther at the banqueting table of Ahasuerus, it is Haman the Agagite. Each and every object, each and every battle, so says David, the king of Israel, the battle belongs to the Lord. You see, this is where I wish to end this morning. For you, the people of God on this Lord's day. Because this, beloved, is worthy of our greater contemplations as we eat in just a few moments, as we fellowship one with another and we share our stories, how we're doing, where we're going, what we're up to, as we leave this place and we contemplate throughout the course of the remainder of Lord's Day. This sense is well worth our continued contemplation for us to understand through the text and to lay hold of the fact, beloved, that no matter the object, Again, the diversity of objects here is probably as diverse as the people gathered. You have your own providence that you're living out tomorrow morning. I'm not going with you, you're not going with me. Of course, I just go across the hall in my home. You have to probably get dressed, go to a place of employment. I'm not going with you, you're not going with me. Each and every one of us have our own providence, whether right when we leave this place or what we have for tomorrow. So again, for us to understand and to lay hold of the fact that no matter the object or the face of your present challenge, I say object or face because there is something that you have in your mind's eye that is weighing you down a concern, a burden. Whatever is the object or the face of your present challenge, your present conflict, your present source of discouragement, fear, or even anxiety, beloved, consider the scriptures. Lay them to heart. For we learn therein the battle belongs to the Lord. But what does this mean for us? That the battle belongs to the Lord for me. That as I face down challenge A, as I consider the conflict I'm experiencing B, or I'm thinking of the great source of cloud of providential discouragement that seems to weigh over my head, option C, or I think of what is bringing me great fear and anxiety, to know and to rest that the battle belongs to the Lord, that he fights on behalf of his people. 
What ought this do for me? How can I lay hold of it? In meaningful measure, I would suggest this. It means in very real sense, beloved, that faith in Christ and peace which he provides can truly defeat and dislodge our source of fear and discouragements. I say to you, consider the scriptures. A great place to go for that if you wanted to sit and meditate on how indeed your battle, my battle, the battle for the people of God, each and every one of us belongs to the Lord for resolve. Read no more than Hebrews 11. As it traces redemptively historically the burdens and the hardships, discouragements and the conflicts of the people of God who by faith rested upon Christ just as Moses considered Christ greater than all of the wealth of Egypt. So much so it enabled him to make the definitive choice he would rather suffer with the people of God than to have the riches and the empty pleasures of sin. Beloved, call to mind this battle belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for tremendous stories told to us and taught to us as your children, as we gather round to hear from your word, as we think of even a parent opening a text and reading aloud, as we sit and we, we have pictures in our mind of all that's taking place and who we are and how we align with the story and who the characters are and what we are to learn. And we see there indeed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whom became flesh and dwelt among us, who brought salvation and deliverance from our enemies and our foes, who by his spirit unites us with him in great victory, and yet we are pilgrims on the way to our final destination of victory. And as pilgrims on the way, we face many discouragement, many fields of challenge, many discouragements, anxieties, worries, and fears. Sin that so easily entangles and lays hold makes life less meaningful. But we can't get out of it. Deliver us as your people. Nourish us upon your word. Fight our laziness by your spirit aid and give strength and grace for diligence, character, virtue, transformation and nourishment. Help us, dear God, for we trust and hope in you. The battle belongs to you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.